This is the Colored Pencil Podcast, session number 145. Welcome to Sharpened Artist, a colored pencil podcast where we discuss in detail all things in and around colored pencils and the colored pencil artist. And now your hosts, Lisa Clow and John Middick. Hello, my name is John Middick of SharpenedArtist.com, and I'm joined, as usual, by Lisa Clow of Lockery Fine Art. Lisa, how are you today? I'm good, as usual. Just excited to talk about everything. I, I know, this chats. is a fascinating topic. I it love is. this. So, what are we talking about, Lisa? We are talking, and it's funny because it sounds super boring, but it doesn't need to be, still live tips tips for setting them up and some ideas for things that you can use that is you probably have laying around your own house. And this is a topic, though, that really concerns artists quite a bit because this is something that we have to, by necessity, we have to get right. We have to do this and learn how to be as good as possible. Yeah, and I think one of the things that makes still life seem so boring, at least for me, originally I used to think they were so boring because I was taking photos and I'll go more into some of the other mistakes I've made later, but I mean, taking photos with boring lighting, whether it be very evenly lit, because now you can see everything, that seems good, right? Or, mm-hmm. I mean, just uninteresting lighting. The lighting yeah. will make or break your your piece. It's more important, I think, than even the subject. If you've got interesting lighting, good, con- you know, contrast, the, the real light lights, real dark yeah. darks, that will draw the viewer in way more than whatever the subject was. Yeah, even if the subject is very vanilla or mundane, it can just add a lot of interest just by the lighting. So, yeah, we've got some tips today, and I also will be peppering in here some uh, suggestions and tips uh, about portraits and taking portraits since I do that quite a bit as well. All right, so next – Think about the composition before you ever begin to set up your still life project or whatever project you're working on uh, as your reference photo. So if you think about the composition, I'm going to go over just a couple of things that I think can really make an impact on your composition overall and in general. Just as a general rule, think about it before you begin. You know, it, it takes some preparation and some upfront work. And a lot of times what you might want to do is just kind of jot things down, even do like uh, a little sketch maybe and just play around with it. Or if you're wanting to kind of look at, you know, some of the values and something like that, just do like a thumbnail sketch, you know, play around with the composition even as you're setting it up and look at it, look at it through your viewfinder or through uh, your your camera LCD and kind of see what might look better. Even if you thought something might look great, just switch it up anyway and then just kind of play around with it to see, you know, even look better than what you initially thought. And then where you stand or where you set up your tripod has a big impact on the way that things uh, – that the uh, overall composition will look. Now, one of the big things that I wanted to mention here is that when you set up a still life and anything in general where you're using more than one object, one of the things you want to look for is that you don't have what I call a kissing kind of moment. You don't have a kissing of two objects together. And so what do I mean by that? 
instead of something overlapping the other, something is in front of the other thing or behind it, instead of having that situation in the composition, instead you have something that is taking up the same space and then they're touching. They're just barely touching one another, just barely kissing one another, hence the term. It kind of just bothers you when you look at it and you're looking at the, the viewers observing it and viewing the artwork and they see something kissing the other thing. It kind of just is unsettling. And a lot of times we don't even know why. And we're just like, uh, why isn't that overlapping? Or why, you know, what's going on there? Is it is it going to, are they going to merge these things? These two things, are they're right there together, but they're unsettled. So it just does something to you internally. Basically, okay, another, just mm-hmm. make them overlap or not touch at all. Not barely touching. Yeah, no, that's not the problem. That there. barely touching thing is that the kissing of, of objects together is just very unsettling. Okay, a second thing. When you have more than one object again, think about the angles that these objects lend themselves to and, and towards. And so if you're if you're looking at something and it looks like it has more of a linear kind of look to it, if the overall object is linear and okay, let's think about a pencil pencil or pen, any kind of writing instrument, is a line, right? It looks like a line. And so if it's leaning up against something, actually what happens in your mind is you're looking at that object and you're thinking, that is is sort of like an arrow. It's pointing towards something. It's directing the attention of the viewer. And so when you think about anything within the composition that might have some line, maybe the outside edge or some kind of angle involved, something that is lending itself to pointing somewhere where that arrow, if you will, is directing the attention of the viewer. I hope that made sense. Yeah, you'll often hear it called a page blocker, something to pull the viewer's attention right back into the rest of the piece so you're flowing smoothly and not just being drawn straight off that that paper. And one of the big areas for that is where? The corners. So if you think about the corners, the edges are a big deal, but the corners are even more so. So if you have an edge, uh, some kind of straight line or something that is pointing itself off to the bottom right corner or the or the bottom left corner, then that just immediately helps the viewer just exit the painting or the drawing immediately. And you don't want to do that. You want to get them back inside of the drawing. So you want the gaze to be able to move around without having these little exit points. Another thing to think about with that sort of object, a wine bottle. That's something that a lot of people will use in still life pieces. Make sure that that is completely vertical. Unless it's laying down on its side, then it can be angled different directions. You're okay. Very good tip. Very unsettling. Anything. Uh, Yeah. A bottle, a jar, anything. Make sure you're not getting creative with your camera angles. It does not look right. You might think it looks, oh, it's kind of cool, kind of creative. Yeah, most people aren't going to enjoy it. You're right, right. Because yeah. it, it, it does something, again, it, it does something internally it to us. We're like, like it's we're trying to, Just yeah, like it feels it's like it's warped or something. And we're trying to correct it with our eyes and our mind constantly when we're looking at it. So, yeah, very good. Um, yeah, it's kind of like there. when you see people take landscape photography and they think they're being creative by holding the camera slightly so that, that, horizon or whatever line in the distance is angled. feel like you're on the Titanic. Yeah, you're like, why am I leaning? Yeah. I, I, why, yeah. I don't want to lean anymore. So, yes, I didn't definitely. like leaning on the Titanic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, we could go on and on about a, a lot of quote-unquote rules with regard to composition. And there but there are the always reason, exceptions, but there, there, are, there, there are. they're not as common as people like to think they are. 
Right. And the reason, though, that there are some quote-unquote rules is because uh, it, it just does something to, to the viewer. Now, I want to I mention one other that I think is kind of big, um, and I'm going to step outside of still life for just a moment. And that is, if you're getting your reference shots from some landscapes, you're going to draw, paint a landscape. Think about also the fact that if you have something that is very horizontal, a landscape already is horizontal. So if you have something that is just layered horizontal lines, if you look at it, you squint your eyes, and you're like, okay, I see a bunch of horizontal lines, then vary that type of uh, composition as well. And if there's a, a row of trees, maybe there's grass, row of trees, sky. There's three uh, different horizontal uh, objects that are taking up the space. Then it, what really works well is to break that up, and it's especially towards the middle, maybe not dead center in the middle, but have some kind of broken up area where the trees are open just a little bit so that I can get in there. I can look inside there. I can go towards that middle area somewhere inside the drawing or the painting where there's some interest where, again, it's drawing the viewer back in to the piece and, and uh, breaking up the interest in that way. Yeah. And then bringing that back to still life, you may have several jars, several bottles, several cups in one piece. Every single one of those, all of your vertical lines need to be parallel to every other vertical line with the, the other objects there. So you, some may be closer to the viewer, some farther away. That is in many case, going to be the case for many, but you still need to make sure that those vertical lines all match up. So your horizontal lines may vary as far as where they're, you know, they're located. Right, right. But those vertical, really watch that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a lot of times with that, if you're, especially if you're using a smaller lens camera or a camera phone, and if you're getting up real close on something, you know, if you're, if you're not distancing that plane of where the plane of focus is exactly, then your camera lens will tend to skew some of those things sometimes. So that's just something to look out for. Yeah. Once you start. can be just as bad if it's a small piece of glass. Yeah. When you get onto your artwork. Yeah. Straighten them out if you need to. Yeah. Yeah. The next tip we've got, be creative with the cropping of your paper size. You are not limited to your standard 8 by 10, 11 by 14, 16 by 20, whatever it is. So, I mean, sometimes I, well, I, let's say more often than not, I go with that just because I'm being lazy and don't want to cut a mat size. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's always the best choice for the work. There are many times that I'll find that something like an 8 by 20 totally random size, but that fits my composition better and makes for a much more creative piece than that standard 11 by 14 where I could be lazy and didn't have to cut anything myself. By trimming things, making it long and thin one way or another, that can make a really big difference on your whole, your composition as a whole. So don't feel like you're limited to the standard sizes. You can adjust those. And as far as having to have custom mats made, for me, I don't have custom frames made. I will go with standard frames, but I'll have a custom mat or in this, now I just cut my own. But you can go to a frame shop and they'll custom frame or mat that so that the the opening of the mat fits your work, but the outside edge can fit a standard frame. So you you can yeah. save a bit of money that way. And that sometimes has a really nice impact where it's almost like this wide, um, why am I not thinking of the term that we have on TV? Widescreen, that's the word. Yeah, um, yeah. You get that kind of widescreen effect where the frame or the mat may be thicker on the top and the bottom than it is on the sides. I've done that several times and the impact was beautiful. Uh, 
because I wasn't limiting myself to filling that entire standard size. So just be creative in that and, and play around with, I like to play around in Photoshop with the different dimensions and see what is going to look better. I will actually often take a rule of thirds over my my design. I'll, I'll come up with an idea overlay the rule of thirds, which if you're not familiar with, I know we've talked about it before, but it's been a while. The rule of thirds is basically just dividing the piece into three sections horizontally, three sections vertically. And you you have these hot spots where those lines connect, and that's kind of where you want your center of attention. You just kind of base your drawing around that. And while you don't always have to follow that, it's an easy way to make sure that your piece is going to be fairly appealing as far as the layout goes, as far as the composition goes. So for example, you usually don't want your main item or subject to be dead smack in the center. Occasionally, that might look best depending on other factors. Like I said, the rule of thirds or any of these rules, there are going to be exceptions. But more often than not, staying within that can make a big difference on improving what it looks like. But I will get just be kind of creative. In Photoshop, uh, let's say I came up with a still life. I was working on grapes and I had some cups and different things there. I will try all kinds of different sizes with that that rule of thirds overlay. I just downloaded one off the internet. You just do a Google search for rule of thirds. I make it transparent and then overlay it on top of whatever photo that I took. Now I play around with the cropping that way to get an idea of what might be the best possible layout for what it is that I, I'm designing here on a piece where the frame itself I want to see was say was about an 18 by 24 it might have been a little bit bigger and the mat cost mm-hmm. I just did a simple black mat and it was about $20 to have I think I did it at Hobby Lobby they custom matted that for me so it wasn't a super amazing you know I didn't have it double matted or anything but I mean you can go pretty basic and in, for most art show, shows and displays you're probably going to go with a fairly basic design that is not going to detract from your work with I mean of course right. there are always exceptions to everything because I know someone's sitting out there going oh no I put bright red on mine well that may have worked for years yeah. it's, it's you you get to be the exception but in most yeah. cases we're going to go with something pretty simple anyway so yeah it, it's not terribly expensive to have something like that custom custom made for you all right so next if you're you know kind of just wondering what you know what can i use what kind of objects though can i use i don't have anything to take uh, pictures of or and i can't really grab anything off the internet Okay, simple solution here. Just look around your house and repurpose these things for your still life projects. And so we've got some tips here for you, some ideas that you can use. Maybe some leaves from outside, bring those in, use those. Maybe silverware from the kitchen. Maybe a cup, maybe a cup with uh, you know something in it. Maybe tea, a tea bag or something or coffee or whatever. Maybe you've got a biscotti uh, beside the coffee on a, you know, a nice uh, display with your china or something. You know, there's endless things that you could do. Uh, I think we already mentioned, you know, using some fruits. You could use some vegetables too, something like that. You could use uh, tin foil. These are things that you should probably already have, you know, this laying around your house. And the tin foil, you going can, back to that one, I, there's an artist I know who uses that. And oh my gosh, tin foil is almost in every single one of her paintings or drawings. And she kind of crinkles it up. It's interesting. It's stunning. She combines it with mm-hmm. flowers, with bugs, with birds, with all kinds of things. But the way that the light bounces on the tin foil, oh my gosh, oh, it, yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, there there are just – there's probably so many things that you have laying around, and you probably have some books, maybe some magazines, anything like that. Anything that, that you probably think is uh, very mundane or uninteresting, 
you can probably use that very thing. As long as you've got and good lighting just... and your composition, that's what's going to draw people. It's not – I see so many times where people are worried. You know, I don't have anything interesting. I can't go to the zoo and get interesting photos. I can't do this on my own. All the million – I can't. You can. It's just a matter of how you set it up, your lighting, and your composition. Anything in your house can be interesting if you set it mm-hmm. up right. The same thing with lenses. You know, I'll hear people say, well, I don't have the right camera. I don't have the right lenses for that. You know, um, the best lens that you have is right there on your body, and that's your two legs. It matters where you stand. And so you can you can reposition, you know, where you are. And if you don't have, you know, a... Um, a tripod, that's fine too. Just position where you are and then roll your finger very uh, deliberately onto the uh, button to take the picture and you just kind of roll your finger and you can get a pretty good uh, shot without a lot of camera shaking. Speaking of that, uh, slightly off topic, but still something that I, I want to make sure that uh, you all have in your hands. If you go over to my website and on the horizontal navigation, just click on resources, go down to guides. I've got for you there, uh, it's called photo taking guide. Regardless of the camera you're using, I've got this one page guide, very easy to consume and just some quick tips about how to uh, think about, you know, just some uh, starter tips on how to take your own reference photos. So that's available to you. No opt-in for an email or anything like that. It's just out there. Now, the next thing on our list, you may not have, you may need to purchase this, but if you are interested in doing still lives, I can't say enough about this. But we've also got some alternatives for things that don't have to be the same, but that is the light reflectors that you use in photographer, photographer, photography. You can get them on Amazon. I got, I have several sets. One has a little handle on it. It's a bit smaller. That one cost, I don't know, under $15. The other ones were under 20. And it comes with a set where you can put gold over it, silver, black, or have it just be a muted white. Those are for me must haves now that I have them. Oh my gosh. I use them for taking good pictures of my artwork. Sometimes I'll need to use black to block an area out or silver to reflect just enough light under the artwork, but you you can position these so that it bounces the light around. So let's say I've got a strong light coming from the right or the left, or, you know, one of them, pick one, but it's coming from one side. You can use the reflector on the opposite side just to reflect back a tiny bit of light to highlight the shadowed area. And that can make such a difference. And those are nice because you can get them with gold or with silver. So if you want a warm reflection, a cool reflection, you have a lot of control with how you can set up those reflectors. Those are so handy for being able to better control the lighting in whatever situation you're in. And if you don't have those, you can use like a big white foam core board. That's a lot of photographers use those even when they do have the the big reflectors. They're just easy to set up and easy to use. But you can use those uh, or a black foam core board depending on what type of lighting situation you're, you're going to use. Now for me, I'm not one who immediately can look at a situation and go, okay, I need the silver. Okay, I need the white. I play around. I try them all and take photos of everything. And then when I load them into my photo editor, I just decide then which one looked best. But I'm not, I'm definitely not one who is expert enough to just look at it and know, because I think it can kind of feel a little overwhelming when you're like, I don't know if I should use silver or gold. Try them both. See which one looked better to you. Next, try using fabric or something, you know, other than maybe what you've used in the past. Maybe, maybe you know, it's a table or something like that that and you know just switch it up a bit and maybe try fabric as your background or as the base that you're putting your objects on you know that they're resting on or 
you know, maybe you're using maybe a very reflective surface or something like that. So just switch it up and try the same thing Lisa was talking about with the light reflectors. You know, use something different than you have in the past. And sometimes what it does is it just characterizes the object just slightly uh, different than, you know, the way that you've been thinking about it. And so you're able to maybe see something that you didn't see before, something like that. It, it varies up some of the visual interest to your subject. Yeah. And when you use the fabric, don't think that it always has to be perfectly straight. You, I mean, you can have it hanging nice and straight and all perfectly, or you can kind of create waves and folds in that fabric, which can be very interesting, especially if you get something mm -hmm. that is kind of a checkered background or has some sort of a pattern. The way that that fabric folds and the way the pattern cuts off and then starts again on the other side, the way you do your shadows, that can make for such an interesting piece. Big tip, iron it first. I cannot stress that enough. The amount of times that I see people do this or use um, like just a photography setup in general, usually it's not artists, but they will set up things to use as a backdrop for a portrait or something like that. And they don't iron, whether it's a bed sheet or whatever else, it's like, just iron it. You have to, yeah. it looks so tacky <laughs> yeah. if you don't iron it, but you can uh. lay it out so that you've got some really nice folds. And with the way that the light will bounce around on that, oh, it can look beautiful. I used to work with this guy, and it looked like he always went to the bottom of the laundry pile to grab his clothes. <laughs> Good grief. Those wouldn't be high waters <laughs> if they were ironed, you know. All right. So next, um, play around with your lighting. I know we talked about this just a little bit, but... You know, seriously, if, you know, you have some good natural daylight, maybe from a window or something like that, nothing is as awesome as that. I mean, there there's so many advantages to having just good, soft, like natural early morning light or late afternoon, maybe in the evening, you get that warm light in there. To me, what I really love is I don't like a lot of harsh harshness in artwork anyway. I don't like a lot of um, big drastic changes in darks and lights. I like the middle values. I like it where soft shadows are gradually hedging, you know, over into the dark and then back over into the light. And so I like that soft, subtle transition from light to dark. Uh, I know everyone has their personal taste on that, but one of the best ways of, uh, to accomplish this is to use just natural light from a window or something like that. Something where it's diffused a little bit more than what you would get from a harsh light. And so if you don't have that or if it's difficult to get that kind of setup, another way of accomplishing that would be use, you know, use a cheapo clamp light if you need to. And you can, um, if, you, if it's too harsh, you know, get a wattage that is a little bit lower in watts and then move the light away from the source. I know, brilliant, right? If that is even too much, you know, you can always uh, put, you know, a white uh, hand towel over the, the light uh, fixture or something like that. And sometimes that'll help diffuse the light just a little bit. So this kind of goes into one of the biggest mistakes that I made when I first started trying to do still life. I like, I'm opposite of John in this. I like harsh contrast, the dark, dark, super bright lights. I love that. I know you do. I know. You and I it's are so nearly funny. opposite on this. It's it just exactly proof. There's opposite. no one right or wrong. It just depends on what you guys, you know, what right, you yourself right. as the artists are looking for. But for me, yeah. I like that harsh right. contrast. And so I kept trying to take still, I went and bought so many fruits and vegetables. I mean, I like like fruits and vegetables, but I was buying things I had no interest in eating because I wanted to take photos of them. So I set all of these up. I, I was, I mean, the composition I thought was pretty good. And so I thought because I wanted the dark shadows, I needed to take this photo at night. First, 
definitely not true. I was not familiar with how to use certain photo editors and that sort of thing, but that was definitely my first mistake is thinking I needed to do this at night with a single light source so that I could control that. It it didn't work out well. And I had the clamp light, what John is talking about. I got that at like the hardware store. So that is clamped somewhere near my subject. And I tried so many different things to get photos. I was messing with the camera settings, messing with everything. But the darks were too dark. It was just straight black. And then the, the light areas I was overexposing and trying to get the dark areas darker or having a to be able to show up at least a little bit. It almost didn't look like fruit. It looked like this weird abstract. It was not working for me. <laughs> well, I didn't realize years later, I kind of gave up on it. It was like, wow, I'm just terrible at this. I give up. Years later, I was watching a video and saw most setups do not use single source lighting. Usually you've got multiple light sources. So you may have a much weaker light farther away for the shadowed area. Or I could have taken those reflectors we were talking about earlier. If I had a silver or a white or the gold reflector and just slightly reflected so that that reflector was behind my subject, but the light, my main light source was catching it and it could kind of bounce that light back into the shadows. It's not that I'm trying to get the the shadows gone or remove them completely. I just need to light lighten a little bit. I need a hint of there's an object here, that this isn't just dark, dark black. And those reflectors, for me, really just learning more than one light source is actually a good thing. I didn't understand that. I thought everything, you just had a big, one big, strong light source. And when I saw a video of how photographers actually do these night still life photos, where things are slightly backlit, I mean, barely, not much, but that little bit made such a big difference between that and when they would turn all the lights off, but the one, it was incredible. I didn't even notice in looking at their final photos that they had multiple light sources. It was so minor. But once you saw that it without, I mean, the difference was huge, huge in what you can create when you use more than one light source. In my case, my darks were too dark. And you know that's got to be dark if it's too dark for me. I love that. Yeah, that does make a big difference. And like you said, it's it's very subtle. It's very tiny, but it does make a huge Even difference. Tin it foil. adds to the realism. Yeah, I could have used tinfoil to reflect that light mm-hmm. back. Right, something, right. something off screen. It, it wasn't something in the photo, but yeah, yeah you're right. Right. Yeah, so – I want to share uh, one of the biggest mistakes that I've made in the past with regard to reference uh, photo taking. And that was, and sometimes I still do this and I have to remind myself, but I'll set something, I'll have it in my mind. This kind of harkens back to what I was talking about earlier in the show. But, you know, I'll set something up and I'll think, oh, this is going to be perfect. That's so good. Oh, look at this. This is going to be great. And I'll set it all up and I take just a few photos and I think, oh, yeah, I got the perfect one. I get back to my computer, load up everything, take a look at it, and it, it just it's just falling flat. It just doesn't look right. And the mistake is that I didn't vary it up. I maybe had, you know, one or two light sources. I didn't take enough photos is the bottom line. I thought I had the composition just perfect the first time and I didn't vary up anything. I didn't change anything because you can take maybe a hundred photos and then you go back and you look at it on a larger screen and something starts jumping out at you and then you're like oh wait 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 now i've got a better idea of what i want to do and then you can go back and change it up and decide you know what might look even better after seeing you know what your first attempts were so that's my biggest tip is just you know just take a look at things don't you know don't just have it so fixed in your mind that you know you you've got this perfect composition in your head and it's going to be just 
the greatest thing ever, and then you only take a few photos, and then you wait and look at it on your LCD, and then after you've already put everything back up and you've you know torn you down everything, back up? Uh, that's my yeah. Oh, it's like so oh, I should have left that. that out there and loaded yeah, everything. At least make sure I've yeah. got the shots I want before I put everything. Yeah, away. I'm yes. all about oh, batching stuff and like okay, I'm doing this uh, right now. Now I'm gonna upload all everything <laughs> right now. Now I'm gonna edit everything. I've done that. It's like no, so don't do that. Many times. Yeah, but yes. just well, and I like things to be clean and organized. I don't like knowing I've got a mess right. in the other room where I had a, a well, photo there is set that up. Too, yeah. it's like, but I, ha- I have to fight myself on that. Don't put it away until you're sure you've got at least a few shots yeah. that you know you love. All right. So those are just some tips that we have regarding some still life setups and ideas. Maybe you have something you would like to add to this. You can reach out to us, podcast at sharpenedartist.com. Lisa's at Lockery. I'm at Sharpened Artist on Twitter and probably everywhere else on social media. And this is a weekly show, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. All the show notes can be found at www.sharpenedartist.com.